0: The stories contained in this podcast are the recollections of the guests we've invited onto the show. We are merely an outlet for people to share their truths, and we accept no legal responsibility for the stories contained herein.
1: I'm Kendra Sheets. And I'm Rich Gill. And this is Enough, a podcast which aims to shine light into the darkened corners of the music industry, while discussing the ways we can and should improve ourselves and, in turn, our community.
0: Content warning. This podcast may contain frank and graphic descriptions of sexual abuse and assault, including instances of rape. These accounts can be triggering specifically for those who have also experienced trauma, especially of a sexual nature.
2: If
1: at any point during this podcast, you feel yourself getting triggered, we suggest taking a break and taking care of yourself before continuing. But we do ask that you continue. These conversations are mentally taxing, but they are so important to have. Thank you. Welcome back to another episode of the Enough Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kendra.
0: I am the other host, Rich.
1: And we are here with Becky today. Becky is a member of Nathan Gray and the Iron Roses. Becky, if you would like to just give us a little intro about yourself and who you are, how you got into music, and kind of why you're here with us today.
2: Yes, I would love to. So like Kendra said, my name is Becky. I am a backing vocalist for Nathan Gray and the Iron Roses. I also take on some tour management duties, which I refer to as chaos coordination.
0: I did that for several years, so yes, it is.
2: It's a whole thing, yeah, yeah, a full of, of boys to coordinate. So I am a woman over the age of 40. I have two children, so it's pretty badass to be on stage at this place of my life. I've been singing ever since I was a wee little girl. I took some uh, about a decade and a half off around the time that my um, children were born and when I was married. But I'm back at it, and I used to just record on Nathan's albums. Like I've recorded backing vocals on all of his solo albums so far, and just gradually started to lean into the the live show. Um, even more. And now you will just see me dancing my ass off on stage every time. Like I always think it's hilarious because if I did any of those moves anywhere else, people would think I was a maniac, but on stage it becomes cool and it's okay to dance that way. And it's not embarrassing at all. So.
0: Well, what's yeah. the saying? Dance like no one's watching? Like,
2: exactly. Do that Except when everybody
0: everybody's is. watching.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then they made the mistake of letting me have a tambourine. So now I'm like <laughs> in with my tambourine. And yeah, <laughs> that amplifies the dancing.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, so what got you started into music? You said you started singing from years and years ago. Like at what age did you find outside of like, like top 40 radio, like kind of like the stuff your parents were listening to, or like your siblings, or, like what got you to the point where you were like branching out?
2: It's funny that you asked me that. Cause I'm always like mildly embarrassed of my musical journey as far Excellent. as being a fan. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. I'm going to love this. <laughs> so I was, first of all, like my first solo was in third grade. Like I still remember it. I can still sing it. I remember the costume I wore. Like that was like when the spark happened. And so music has always been this thing that has just been a part of me. Like it, everybody has that thing that they've held close, you know, their whole life. And that, that's been music for me, in particular singing. Like I can't play an instrument to save my life, which is wild to say out loud, but <laughs> I can sting my ass off. Don't ask me to play an instrument, <laughs> except for the tambourine, which right. is an instrument. Right. You know, when I was a, a young girl, like you know, preteens, even teens, like, I, <laughs> I really liked theater music, but I also liked really weird shit, like Civil War music, or powwow music, <laughs> or 50s music, like, nothing that any of my peers were listening to, like, nothing at all, um, and I don't even think I really crossed the crest of coolness until, like, my junior year of high school, maybe, <laughs> so I always had these, like, Tapes that, like, if friends came over, I wouldn't really want to play for them because I, I was embarrassed. You know, I'm 13, 14 years old. I'm supposed to be in bed at night, and I'm sobbing to Unchained Melody. Nobody's ever gonna dance (laughs) with me to this song. Like, that's all I want out of. Yeah, yeah, I totally. We've all been there. Have you? Have you? Have you cried to Unchained Melody?
0: <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe yesterday
2: afternoon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe I'm doing it right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, once I got into high school, you know, I was the theater girl, you know, did all the musicals, choir. Um, I actually grew up in Catholic schools, which explains a lot about me <laughs> as a person, but me I, too. I was, <laughs> yeah, I um, participated in choir because it was the way to make mass move faster. And so I could sing, you know, during mass and and youth groups and things like that, you know, until I got out of high school, I didn't do anything like that could be considered a band, you know, it wasn't until I was about 21 that a friend at work heard I sang and had a brother who was in a band and they're like, Oh, you guys should like do something together. And I ended up in the studio for the first time ever, like didn't know what the hell I was doing. But that's when that type of live music bug really bit me. Um, And for a while, I was sort of like how I started out with with Nathan. Like, you know, I was was the the Fergie, the girl who did stuff in the background for everybody's (laughs) bands. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think there were three or four local bands that I did like some backing stuff on a couple songs for, you know. So this really has pushed me into a place where I am more than like just a voice that's kind of in in an album somewhere and allowed me to kind of grow musically and as a person, like a female person, a person with a body. Like, I feel like I'm just now starting to kind of blossom in that respect.
0: When you were sort of jumping on other people's stuff and like mm-hmm. doing background vocals and stuff, because with a lot of times with like music, it's very, it's like a bunch of dudes just like in the studio. together.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> so was it a lot of like you being the only like female identifying person? Yes. and?
2: Yes, absolutely. Which was sort of awesome in the way that it—you know—there was nobody else in the, in my hometown scene at the time that was a female that was on stage or on somebody's album, and so people were like, "Whoa, like Becky, Becky, Becky!" And that was cool. I loved that, and I loved being. That female person. I loved having female fans that were like, you know, we love seeing you up there. Whatever that that was fun. But you're right; it was definitely also like playing in a locker room sometimes. Yeah, I
1: don't think that there's enough credit or really full understanding for when you're female identifying and you're kind of blazing a trail through something. It's everyone's like, wow, that's really cool. Like, you know, I've always wanted to, or you know, I look up to you. But there is so much that you have to deal with to be the person who's doing that. It's, it's really a kick in the ass, like every single day.
2: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. You are absolutely right about that. It has,
1: there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it too. So yeah, it can also feel really lonely. I mean, it's, it's one of those times where you just don't really feel like other people have a complete understanding the same way that you do. Like your, your reality doesn't really match up with a lot of other people around you because of, you know, your gender, which sucks. I mean, yeah, it's so <laughs> shitty to have to say that. Like, Jesus, that's it's the yeah. truth. Yeah. <laughs> were they,
0: were the, were the guys that you were working with, were they like protective of you and making, making sure that you were like, you know, felt comfortable or were they just kind of like, yeah, come in and, you know, do this part and then whatever, we're just going to like act how we act and you have to deal with it.
2: I mean, they definitely acted the way they acted. Like, I think to my credit, sometimes I'm still a teenage boy in my head, so I jive. But at the same respect, like, yeah,
0: (laughs) in this little scene of ours, mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) yeah, which is totally fine. Like, I have the sense of humor of a teenage boy, and, and that makes it very easy for me to be stuck in an RV with a bunch of boys for three weeks, like. But I, in those days, like when I was starting to be somebody who was on stage and, and recording albums, I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm sure a lot of them were including me because they wanted to fuck me. Like, it's just the reality. And it, it was what it was. I didn't give in to that. But like, there was definitely pressure. But like, it was like an elephant in the room sort of thing, you know? Um, and that was like the musicians that I was working with, not all of them. You know, not all of them were like that. Some of them were, were not at all. They were just purely like working with a brother, but in the same respect, like the fans were also an extra component because you have a room full of men at a, a concert to see mostly men, but then there's one female and it's like <laughs> <laughs> Vulture was on a on a, a carcass on the side of the road.
0: And there's always that sort of thing where it's like, is this person being nice to me because they're a fan? They like what I do. or Are they being nice to me because they just want to fuck me?
1: And for a lot of guys in the punk scene, they're like, are they being nice to me because they're a fan? And do they want to fuck me? Yeah. Like, that's like the best case scenario. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. What were you saying?
2: (laughs) Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, as we were talking about it, like, I remember a shift where people started to know me back in those days. Like, they started seeing me more on stage and like you know word was starting to get out you know this band has this girl Becky that's doing stuff and like there was a, a pivot in where at shows there's like a hug to say hello to people. You know sometimes we just say hello to people and we hug naturally that's like hey nice to meet you I saw you on my face or whatever friends there in those days. And then there is men touching my hip or my back.
0: Very intimate
2: yes I remember I think I even had like a a journal thing or a poem or something I had written about how suddenly I loved what I was doing, but I suddenly felt like everybody thought that they owned a piece of me because they were all allowed to touch me because they saw me on stage and I I gave them some sort of feeling. And now everybody wants to touch me. Like, why does everybody want to touch me?
0: When we talk about stuff like this, a lot of times it's just either like assault or verbal harassment or Rape or things like that, and people don't think about the, you know, just respecting people's personal space.
2: I will say, like this can even happen to me in Home Depot. Like it's happened to me in many places. My specific experience with domestic violence and abuse was very sexually motivated. So I have a very difficult time still trying to learn or accept that I have autonomy over my body or ownership over how it's used and when it's used, that can sometimes play out in the way where if somebody makes a comment to me, I will go into a downward spiral of depression and panic because that comment or that touch has made me feel that my body is no longer my own, or it's back to not being my own because somebody else's looking at it in a way for their pleasure or touching it in a way for their pleasure. And now I, I, again, I'm back to my body doesn't belong to me. And that's like the core of something that I struggle with all the time is understanding that I do own my body and that I have autonomy over it and just kind of keeping that with a bow on it. And sometimes little things and people aren't doing it to be malicious and they don't realize that they're doing it, but little things like comments Small touches that are are not just a hug, like thing you know, hands on the back or the hip, like the, those trigger something in me that is very like, I my body's not mine again, so I think people don't realize that or think about that, and it would be a challenge that I would throw out to people to just keep that in the back of their mind when they approach people with words or physical touch, like how how have I been invited into this exchange, or Am I attempting to take ownership over somebody's person that I have not been invited to, and that like like I said, that can extend beyond like you know assault and rape and 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 those types of things. It can be very small things too that I can also set somebody off so
1: there's also that kind of weird aspect to it where like, as a musician or as an artist who puts out their art into the world, when people receive that, they Take it in, and you know, it's kind of like that, oh, that line was written totally for me, even though they have no idea about who the fuck you are, be- besides the fact you wrote a song that they really like. and they're like, oh, or they follow you like with nowadays with like social media, you get this inner look at everyone's lives. And so between these songs that you feel like are crafted for you in some sort of way, and you finding out what their, you know, spouse or partner or mom or kid or dog or whatever is like and these intimate moments, they actually feel like they know you. So that wall comes down where they're like, I love you, come on, give me, let me give you a hug. And so it makes it so much more accessible for that kind of um, like over intimacy to happen on a first meet.
2: Yeah, and I think if you take all of that, like if we're talking about, you know, myself and my band, Nathan Gray and the Iron Roses, you take all of that with the accessibility and songs that speak to people, and then you add in, that what we do is also very like a mission focused like we are very much about a community of self healers and like there is a huge aspect of vulnerability together which makes it very tricky to for me personally to set and maintain boundaries without worrying that I'm not holding upholding what we are putting out culturally as a band, if that makes sense, like right i I want to make sure that people come to our shows and they can cry, and I will hug them during the set. like if they if I look over and somebody is having a moment where they need someone, I will get off the stage and hug up. like because Nathan talks during our set, he we call him little sermons for lack of a better word, but there are multiple nights where people, some of it, sometimes it's us, but there are multiple nights where people are crying in the audience, and I never want people to feel alone in that moment. So I will hop down off the stage and hug them or just, you know, let them know that they're in a safe place, that type of thing. So when we have that kind of experience that we're setting for people, it even more exacerbates that blurred wall of intimacy and knowing of each other. And it makes it very difficult for me to sometimes be able to set a boundary and stick to it. Like everybody has their own traumas. Like anybody That's a a person has had difficult things in their life. Myself, I come from an abusive marriage. Um, A lot of that was sexually motivated abuse. So my physical boundaries sometimes get very shook. (laughs) Um, So sometimes I am in a place where I am okay to communicate with people and to love on them when they need it. But I also need to know that I am able to decline a hug if I'm in a day where I, I don't want to be touched. And it's very hard to communicate that to people. Like, So that's something that I'm trying to get unstuck or kind of work out in my head. Like, how do I give people the experience that they deserve, but also set and maintain some boundaries for myself for what I need? And that's very difficult.
1: Setting self-boundaries is always hard because it feels, at least for me, you feel like if what you're doing for yourself, which you know is right, which you need, you feel like you're letting someone else down on a consistent basis but what you're doing is you're draining yourself out or you're injuring yourself or you're re-traumatizing yourself through the things that you're doing. And I, I always feel like such an asshole when I put up boundaries, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, same. just in general, like at all. Cause I always want to say yes to everything and help out everyone all the time. But like, I'm at negative 500, like most days and I'll just keep saying yes. And like nothing ever gets done for me on a personal basis. So like just self-boundaries in general are, are exceedingly hard. I'm sure in this scenario, it's gotta be, just absolutely
2: excruciating. <laughs> <laughs> it's um it's a difficult balance, but I also I also want to be careful that I'm not putting out a vibe that, that makes people view me as unapproachable or let's be honest, especially because I am a woman, I I don't want to get in a situation where people are like she's a bitch or whatever like it reflect on my bam she's just being a pmsy bitch or whatever (laughs) when i'm just trying to set a boundary like
1: three weeks out of four we feel like (laughs) shit men three weeks out of four you give us some slack
2: (laughs) you try it yeah right but i mean really like there is like an extra component like i am also a woman and i also feel an extra responsibility like how are how are people going to receive me in that way
0: Part of that also, I think, goes to the discussion of consent, where you shouldn't have to worry about if you're like, if you feel comfortable in the moment, like comforting someone who's like having a moment, but then not have to worry about, you know, someone like seeing that as an open invitation to have access to your body at any point. Verbal and nonverbal cues, people like you need to (laughs) watch those.
2: Yeah. And not everybody can, like, like, you know, Kendra was just talking about, like, there's this chemistry of being caught up in a moment and like, mm-hmm. <laughs> well,
1: and there's people who just, who aren't
2: able to
1: associate between verbal and nonverbal cues, you know, they're, they're actually stunted in some of those ways. And I think that's one of the hardest parts of, I guess, everything that we talk about is that every person is on a completely different wavelength. So everything that we're talking about on a podcast to podcast basis is. How do we all get along and keep each one of us safe and keep us each moving forward in this music scene by not hurting each other, but also like every, like you said, everyone has their own trauma, everyone has their own experiences. How do we come together and kind of like almost what guidelines can we establish like as human beings to make sure that we're not hurting people on a moment to moment basis? Again, hard, not an easy conversation. None of these conversations are easy.
2: (laughs) That's why we have them. That's right. (laughs) We,
0: we We don't have all the answers all the time. And sometimes we just ask the questions. When we talked to Nathan, he was very upfront about the fact that that band has a zero, and him especially, has a zero tolerance policy for, there's any word of anyone being inappropriate or harassing or assaulting someone like I think his exact words were, we will leave you on the side of the fucking road.
1: I was just going to say that. Like, <laughs> those were definitely the exact words. You mean, but.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing in today's uh, music scene when there are every other day, there's a different band that has something coming out about them. Is that like empowering to be in a situation like that where you know with 100% certainty that everyone that you're traveling with has your back, has each other's back?
2: Absolutely. We were even, you know, in a situation once where we needed to fulfill, I, maybe, I think it was our our drummer wasn't able to be with us on a tour and somebody was like, oh, why don't you just put out a posting? And, and Nathan was like, you're out of your mind if you think we're getting in an RV for three weeks with somebody we've not met or vetted in any way, like out of the question. My bandmates look out for each other and me equally, and I do know that I am safe with all of them or that I call on all of them because Nathan has been so intentional about the people that he brings in. As a human, he cares about other humans, but he also knows that his fans, most of them have been with him for over two decades and he owes them safe spaces. He owes them a place that they can come and be and know that like, some asshole guitarist isn't going to try to feel up one of his fans in, in in the bathroom, or you know that nobody is going to let a guy do that to me. He has handcrafted that in a way that all of us we even joke like if if somebody after a show if we're we're feeling uncomfortable. I'm not gonna tell you what it is because then people will look out for it. But if if one of us is uncomfortable and needs a wingman, we we have a little signal that not just me, but like all of us can use and multiple members have used in order to have somebody, you know, come over and, and and help or extricate them from the situation, you know, whatever that may be. So it's not just a safe space for me, it's for each other too. And that's what I love is I know I love knowing that my bandmates are my brothers and that they would lay down and die for me but they would do that for each other too it's not just because I'm a chick it's because they are good people and and we're we're a family of good people so it is empowering and not just on stage or in a venue like outside of there even like there was a situation you know the other day in our neighborhood where something happened that I was extremely uncomfortable um, about just walking between Nathan's house and my house which, like I said is three doors away and you know Nathan went out and let somebody know another male like what they had done was not okay like these are people that will do that in any situation for each other and that I couldn't imagine you know spending all of that time and all of that space and all of that energy and putting our dreams into one bucket with anybody else
1: that's so great in so many ways I feel like we're, we're kind of in a wild west when it comes to these kind of safe spaces just the the, the difference between what punk rock was in the 70s versus the 90s versus what it's going to be in 2025?
2: I think from a simple issue of safety, like, of course, we're not perfect. But I can pretty much say with a a good amount of certainty that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you would not have walked into a venue bathroom and seen a poster up that says if somebody is harassing you, tell the bartender you want a banana, blueberry, martini, or whatever. Like, anytime I see that shit, I get so happy because I'm like, yes, I instantly can't wait to come back to this place because they get it. They care. Or things about um, respecting people's genders in the bathroom, like, don't look under the stall. Like, these types of things that are, are creating not just, like, the people, but the, the spaces themselves as safe, we're going in the right direction. Right. <laughs> we are going in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's no such thing as a 100% safe space. We're just looking for safer spaces because for a while, they weren't safe at all.
1: And the mentality, the original punk rock mentality is like, you might get stabbed if you come to this show.
0: (laughs) But that's sort of what we talk about. Like, you know, these people who are stuck in the 80s, early 90s, like, oh, this is supposed to be dangerous and offensive. And if you can't take it, fuck off. And it's just like, no, you like, Society is changing.
1: We're supposed to be ahead of the curve. Not super yeah. far prehistorically behind.
0: Yeah. If comedians can get it, most of them, some of them, of them, not some all of them, of them, win them Grammys. some of them, yes. Well, That's for another. <laughs> We're going to have a whole episode about that. But, you know, if, the, if they're like, well, yeah, I have to change my comedy because, you know, it's no longer acceptable and it shouldn't have been acceptable to make these kinds of jokes. And that's great. I'll do something else. I won't make those jokes. But it seems like a lot of the indie punk, whatever you want to call it, scene can't make that change.
1: Well, they're digging their heels in. It's, it's the male culture, really. And it's the same thing that we saw with the comedians initially. And then we're starting to see some of the younger people kind of change. And I think the same thing for like punk and indie and just music in general. I mean, you're looking at bands that, you know, we're all over the I'm not going to, you know, give anything away, but we're all over the age <laughs> of 30. <laughs> uh, uh, each one of us but you definitely can see it in the younger bands that are 21 20 years old even in their teens like they're only playing at venues where they know people at this time are vaccinated wearing masks you know they'll call something out if they see it from the stage like I mean they're not putting up with a lot of shit anymore and it it should have been this way a long time ago and the fact that 50 year old men are trying to get away with things and 18 year olds are the ones that are stopping them is pretty cool
2: It's similar to the evolution of where we're at with mental wellness, I feel like. Like our parents, you couldn't, vodka was therapy. Like, you know what I mean? Like that, you did not talk about your mental health. You did not address it. And like, I'm a parent. I have a 15 year old trans daughter and she is like, I'm sad, let's get some therapy or just being self-aware enough to know like who she is. The generations that are behind us are gonna just keep pushing, you know, pushing that ball up the hill. Like we're, we're laying a really great foundation for what they're going to just kind of continue on. Like the next generation of musicians are going to just, I mean, we're in good hands. I feel like, you know, (laughs) I really do. So the 50 year olds that have, um, issues with it are, are not, not my punk and indie anyway. So exactly. Well, let's get back to a little bit more directly about you Um,
1: You mentioned, you know, getting these improper hugs or touches and kind of just overall feeling kind of off at shows. Can you maybe dive into some more of the experiences that you've had as a woman in music who's put herself out there, whether it's behind the scenes more so, you know, putting yourself out on the label or being literally out there on stage?
2: There's enough experiences where it's almost any time that I interact as uh, a musician, or even as a, a tour manager, like it's rare that I get away with a whole night without some little weirdness. You know, whether that's coming back to people feeling as if they have ownership over my body, like too many hugs, <laughs> you know, things that make me uncomfortable, or like, you know, coming to me and, and people that have been to multiple shows and not and I'm not just male presenting people either, like people of all all genders who maybe I am uncomfortable around and will come to me and gesture for a hug and and I will have to kind of busy myself elsewhere because I don't want that. But there's also been, you know, times on the other side of the house where I am there to settle, you know, in somebody's office to settle a show or whatever, and, and I'm walking around and people are thinking that I'm a girlfriend or a fan. Like, what are you doing back here? Right. How did you get back here? Are you awesome? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I'm not. You'll see me up and my tambourine in about 15 minutes. Money, please. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, you know what's awesome as an aside? Um, in Minnesota, when we played there, it was International Women's Day. And we played and Natalie Fiedler played. So it was you know, two we had women on stage for both of those and front of house that day, who I did settle with was also a female. So it was like, the only time that I've ever had that much female power in one evening, and it was awesome. But you know, I've had people like, speak to me shitty. Sometimes they'll come back and like apologize, venue staff, promoters, things like that, because they don't like the answer that I've given them. And I'm like, I'm, you know, ask Nathan, you're going to get the, the same answer out of him, <laughs> but probably a little shittier now that he's had to come like tell you in a boy way what I've just said. <laughs> but I mean, like, most of the time it's easy to brush off, sometimes it's not, and it'll sit with me and it'll fester. And it's like, well, again, I keep reminding myself I am a woman over 40 on stage and I am everything that I wish that I had seen when I was a little girl. So nobody's going to scare me out of this. Like nobody. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And people that are icky are just going to be icky.
1: It's not on you. It's on them. Yeah. No, I know.
2: It's definitely oh, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and you, you know, you bring up a good point about representation also, like there is something very powerful about seeing yourself in someone on stage. And you're doing something huge for women and girls out in the audience watching you. Like that's that's great.
2: Yeah, I know that because of some of the the things that I have received back from people who have come to shows or messaged me privately online. I the other day I actually posted a video of um, a fan whose daughters like were singing. Um, singing along to one of our videos and like singing my parts and she had a little tiny kid tambourine with like the streamers like I have on it um but like I don't take that lightly at all and I think one of the great things about us as Nathan Gray and the Iron Roses is that we do have (laughs) it sounds weird to say it this way but there's someone for everyone so When people are experiencing our show, Nathan and I generally jump off the stage and go right to the merch stand because that's where people like to come to us and tell us how they've experienced the show. Sometimes it is incredibly difficult because we are taking on very difficult stories where they've seen themselves reflected, you know, about self harm or loss that they've experienced, abuse that they've also experienced. But we want them to be able to to share that story back with us that said not everybody's going to be comfortable going up to Nathan but they see me and they might be like "Oh, like I I need to, to say this but I feel comfortable saying this to Becky as another woman or Phil or Jared like everybody has a place where they can be seen for themselves and then they can have their stories received by someone that they perceive to be like them and that's one of the really important parts about how we deliver our message and how we we accept it back from people. So
0: how did you kind of get started with the you said you've done like the tour managing stuff also. Was that is that just with the current band or have you been doing that before?
2: No, that is with the current band and I'll tell you why because Nathan gets overwhelmed by the the stuff of the band and I am better at, I am very type A. I like to organize things. I need things to be a certain way. And he is wildly frantically creative. Like he, he, he can't be tied down with the stuff and I love to handle the stuff. So it's like, I would never, let's just put this out. I would never tour manage another band. Like that wasn't mine. Like that's not something that I want to do. However, in my band, I am able to be a control freak in a way that it benefits us all. And so that's just how it works out. It was like, we've known each other for close to a decade now. And it used to just be like helping most of small stuff, like keeping things organized, or, you know, helping keep interviews scheduled, those types of things. But as things started to roll more in his solo career, it was just easier for me to take on the stuff because I liked it. And to be very honest, like it gave me a sense of purpose. Like I've gone through a lot of really tough years the last Five six years, and it has given me something to put my energy into. So it's like a mutually beneficial thing. Like I I get to I get to create order, and my guys get where they need to be on time. Like <laughs> it just works out as easy as that, I guess.
0: If you feel uh, comfortable talking about, it, you said you'd kind of come from an abusive marriage, and you know, abusive relationships are something that we've covered before on here. Can you kind of talk about how you kind of removed yourself from that situation and what it took to do that.
2: Yeah. I will start by saying it was not fucking easy. It did not happen the first time. Yeah. I, we have two children together. They are older now. There were times when they were both very young that I had physically left and come back. Um, And It didn't stick until the last time because they were old enough to start hearing things or picking things up. And I did not want my children to have those memories. And so it has to be now or never. It came to that. And when I left, the car was in his name. I didn't have a job. I had no family in state. I had no money because he controlled all the finances. I literally left and was like, oh, I will fucking figure it out later. Like Nathan and some of our, my friends, he got with them all and they paid for movers. I walked into an apartment complex and I remember crying and saying, I have no job. I have no way to pay for this. I don't have anything to show you that I can pay for this, but I need a place to be for myself and my kids that is far enough away from their father, but where they can still catch their bus to school. I need you to just trust me. And it was like every, every move after that was the same thing. Like we'll figure it out as we go. We'll figure it out as we go. Like, I don't have a choice. Like, okay, now I have a place now. How the fuck do I place this? Or how, how do I put, how do I get food? You know, like it was like, okay, we just do one more thing. One more thing. I it was about two years after I finally left um, a mutual friend of Nathan's actually helped me get a job where I still work now. Um, it's an incredible job. I work in a very loving culture. I was like, I have been in survival mode since I left my marriage. I am drinking every night to go to sleep without nightmares. I don't drink during the day, but I can't function because I am terrified of all of these memories that are just ready to bubble over. And I knew that I needed to address the abuse, address the trauma, but I tried to go to therapy two, three, four sessions maybe, but going to therapy and talking about those things and then having to go home alone and sit on the floor and cry in those memories without anybody to pick me up was so difficult. I was like, I can't, I I can't, I've got to put food on the table. So I made the decision that I was going to move to Maryland and I was going to have the kids remain in their school system. And I was going to move here by myself and get myself put back together so that I could be the mom they deserve. I got here and like, as soon as it was like a few weeks after I got to Maryland, everything that I had held together, just, you know, the dam busted open. It was like, I'm in my safe place now. And everything came out and it came out horribly. And it kind of culminated in a day where I was driving to work and I felt myself taking my car off a bridge. And I pulled over, (laughs) had a panic attack. About a half an hour later, I got myself together enough to turn around and go into an emergency room and beg for help. And it was the scariest fucking thing. They were like, well, you need to go inpatient. And I'm like, <laughs> the hell I do. Like, I just got to where I'm safe. Like, I can't imagine doing all of this horribly hard stuff, leaving my children to get to a safe place and then going to be committed somewhere. Like I, so I had to kind of create a deal. Like I promise that I'm with safe people. I am living in a home with my two best friends and their two children. I'm living in their four-year-old's bedroom. Like I need you to work with me here. So I entered intensive outpatient therapy and they connected me with the local domestic violence shelter where I received grant funded cost free care and everything that I could need for I just quit um ther- not quit, but I just finished my therapy with them in January. And it's been two solid years that I worked with them. So it was a lot of hard days and I still have a lot of really hard days. Like I'm just now climbing out of a over five week depressive state, but my hard days are easier than they used to be. And they're hard days where I'm not also in physical danger. So
1: we supposedly know so much about not mental health per se, but I mean, domestic hotlines have, they're not new. I mean, there's been abuse going on for a long time. And it's not something that's just come to the forefront recently, but in these scenarios, it's so bizarre to me to hear what the go-to like checklist of items is, which is, oh, you have a history of all these things, Well, we're just going to focus on the fact that at this exact moment, you had a panic attack and you had suicidal ideation slash possible like moving the car towards the bridge, you know, and they're like, we need to put you in inpatient we're completely ignoring the reason of why it came to be at this exact moment. We need to be focusing on the issues in the past that have made the person standing in front of you into the person that they are. I mean, half of the things that they're utilizing aren't even really, they're not really viable resources for the majority of people out there. They work instantaneously. It's kind of like, you know, celebrities going to rehab. You see them, they go in, they're in 90 days, and then you see them at the bar, you know, or they're, you know, running around in a limo. Like, It does, it works momentarily because it gets them away from the situation. It gets them working on something mentally so they're not focused on what's going on. They're safe, but then it puts them back out into the world without any coping mechanisms or tools.
2: I will say like in retrospect, I can look back and say, okay, that was them needing to cover their asses. Like what if, you know what I mean? But the thing that did come out of it was it did connect me to the, the shit I needed. So in a really hard moment, it was the scariest fucking place I've ever been, you know, like in, in the back corner of the ER with like, you know, somebody sitting at the door watching me, you know, taking everything away from me. And like, but I didn't even know that there was a domestic violence shelter. Like I can walk to it from my house. You know, the, the services that it did connect me with when I was in an unsafe moment, that was the most immediate way to get what I needed. And it's not the most fun or the most cost effective, but it fucking worked.
0: Outside of Nathan and his family, did you have support from your family and other friends when you sort of extricated yourself from that situation?
2: Um, I had one friend. I didn't really have many friends left because I mean, it was, control right like I wasn't
0: imagine that
2: yeah <laughs> remove them one by one yes like it, like in the beginning like, I could go and but then like it got easier to not because he would show up or there would be lots of texts and be rating and like get your app you know what I mean that so it made it not worth it so by the time I left I didn't I had one person who I could turn to my family um they don't they live in North Carolina it's my my father died in a plane crash when I was 13 So it's just my mom and my brother and I, but my mom and my brother and I are not close. They are not like, if I think of people that I I need to call in a hard moment, it's not, not them. Like they're, they're my family, but so I really felt stranded and I knew that it just, (laughs) again, I had to figure it out as I went. I mean, that's what women We really figure it out as we go. You have
1: to, that kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, one day at a time, like you were saying, it was, it wasn't even one day. It was one choice at a time. It's I I've, I've solved the apartment. Now, how do we get dinner? You know, where do we, what do we do tomorrow? Do I need to get the job? How am I going to get there? There's no car. I mean, it's just issue after issue. And that it does help that you said you are a type A personality because we love solving a big <laughs> problem or about yes. 40 of them in less than 20 minutes. So I'm sure that was probably why. You were so successful in being able to extricate yourself and and get yourself into a safe place and and into where you are today, which is great.
0: Well, and also, you know, that's sort of a good example of how this sort of chosen family that we kind of pick for ourselves are the ones who a lot of times are really there for you when you don't have like blood family to be those people.
2: Yeah, to be the support system. Like I said, I I lived in Nathan and Katie's daughter's room. Like I lived in their home for as long as I needed, and you know my children have spent Thanksgiving with Nathan's parents. It is that kind of thing, and it I mean it does also help to have a chosen family who sees you and doesn't ask you to be any particular way. I mean Nathan, I know you guys have talked to him. Like he has his own mental um, health challenges and his own history of trauma and sometimes we joke like I need you to not be a mess today because I need to be a mess today like we can't both be a mess at the same time (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) sometimes it doesn't work out that way and we're just both very messy but you know it, (laughs) it does it does help to have chosen family who you don't have to worry about being asked every five seconds, like, are you okay? Like, how are you? Like people that just know that you need space, that you need to not be alone. Like there's different, you know, those nuances. So
1: I lucked I out. <laughs> also, like when you were saying, you know, don't be a mess, I'm going to be a mess. And you're able to talk to somebody that's more of like a peer And we were mentioning with like, you know, parents or people of a certain age, they don't really quite understand because they were not raised in a culture that sits and listens to mental health related therapy issues you know they think you just suck it up and keep moving that's what we did didn't have the money then you get another job and you that's why i
2: am like very intentional about being open in that respect with my children like they don't i've never disclosed to them like why i left or what my experiences were like because that that won't benefit them right now you know i feel like eventually they'll they'll probably come to me and ask and maybe they'll have figured it out i don't want to make an enemy of their father to them they um, still have a
0: good relationship yeah. with him
2: yes yes they do so I always make sure that I'm very open about like oh I'm going to therapy today and my April said like <laughs> this or this like I'm open about like when I when I need to take meds or like you know I'm very open about that because I want them to know it's okay and and model that for them because I don't want them to have a you know that sort of relationship with mental health that my my mother and I did, like, I want it to be like a, hell yeah, I have a therapist. Like you can't imagine what I'd be like without her. Like, I, I just, I need it to be something that is very normal as like going to the dentist. So I make sure that I'm vocal about it in that respect. It is. I mean,
1: it's mental health. It's physical health. We've talked about this before. Your brain is in your body. So why would it not be considered physical health? It's only beneficial to be open about it. It should not be stigmatized because will end up in the scenarios that we've been talking about here, where there's people who aren't able to properly process their trauma and therefore traumatize other people or re-traumatize other people. So I think what you're doing really is the right way of going through it. And I hope that they're receptive to that. I'm sure that they are. Oh, they
2: are. Yeah. Are they, do they have their own
1: therapists?
2: So my, my oldest does now, and it was very like easy. Like she was not feeling herself like a lot of that comes with being 15 and a person who is trans that's a lot right yeah. so
1: being 15 alone is a lot so putting on top of that
2: that extra stuff and but she's very open to it and and I think it helps that they have seen who I am now compared to who I was two years ago like I actually haven't even, I haven't had a drink in three years because I don't need that as a coping mechanism anymore. Like I still have, you know, nightmares and shit, but I double down on melatonin instead. But (laughs) like they, they see that I, I am a more present mother. They see the fruits of my labor, I guess, is the way to see it or to say it. And so me being vocal about how I got there just shows them like, oh, like, well, mom used to like (laughs) be a mess we never knew why, but now she seems to be doing great. We, you know, we have great fun together. I feel like I can talk to her, like having my 15 year old first tell me they were bi, which I was like, yeah, I know. Big, big surprise. <laughs> mom, mom knew. But then like, yeah, recognizing like that there was also like some gender identity things and then like, okay, my child, I'm going to set a space for them to come to me and say what they need to say when they're ready. I would still be an advocate for them if I hadn't done all that work for myself, but I don't know that I would have been the best advocate like I am now. Well, and part of that
0: is also like admitting like to yourself and to your kids and to other people, like, I don't always have all the answers and sometimes I need a little help and we all sometimes need a little help. Enough is a podcast centering on abuse, harassment, and assault in the music scene. To help get the word out, please like or subscribe and share with your friends. If you have been on the receiving end of harm from someone, be it artist, venue owner, audience member, or someone else, and would like to share your story on a future episode, please reach out to us at thisisenoughpodcast at gmail.com. All correspondences are kept confidential.